Section 7 of An American Tragedy, Volume 1 by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Book 1, Chapter 7. And so, of all the influences which might have come to Clyde at this time, either as an aid or an injury to his development, perhaps the most dangerous for him, considering his temperament, was this same Green Davidson, than which no more materially affected or gaudy a realm could have been found anywhere between the two great American mountain ranges. Its darkened and cushioned tea room, so somber and yet tinted so gaily with colored lights, was an ideal rendezvous, not only for such inexperienced and eager flappers of the period, who were to be taken by a show of luxury, but also for those more experienced and perhaps a little faded beauties, who had a thought for their complexions and the advantages of dim and uncertain lights. Also, like most hotels of its kind, it was frequented by a certain type of eager and ambitious male of no certain age or station in life, who counted upon his appearance here at least once, if not twice a day, at certain brisk and interesting hours, to establish for himself the reputation of man about town, or a rounder, or man of wealth, or taste, or attractiveness, or all. And it was not long after Clyde had begun to work here that he was informed by these peculiar boys with whom he was associated, one or more of whom was constantly seated with him upon the hop bench, as they called it, as to the evidence and presence even here, it was not long before various examples of the phenomena were pointed out to him, of a certain type of social pervert, morally disarranged and socially taboo, who sought to arrest and interest boys of their type in order to come into some form of illicit relationship with them, which at first Clyde could not grasp. The mere thought of it made him ill. And yet some of these boys, as he was now informed, a certain youth in particular who was not on the same watch with him at this time, were supposed to be of the mind that fell for it, as one of the other youths phrased it. And the talk and palaver that went on in the lobby and the grill, to say nothing of the restaurants and rooms, were sufficient to convince any inexperienced and none too discerning mind that the chief business of life for anyone with a little money or social position was to attend a theater, a ball game in season, or to dance, motor, entertain friends at dinner, or to travel to New York, Europe, Chicago, California. And there had been in the lives of most of these boys such a lack of anything that approached comfort or taste, let alone luxury, that, not unlike Clyde, they were inclined to not only exaggerate the import of all that they saw, but to see in this sudden transition an opportunity to partake of it all. Who were these people with money, and what had they done that they should enjoy so much luxury, where others as good seemingly as themselves had nothing? And wherein did these latter differ so greatly from the successful? Clyde could not see. Yet these thoughts flashed through the minds of every one of these boys. At the same time, the admiration, to say nothing of the private overtures of a certain type of woman or girl, who inhibited perhaps by the social milieu in which she found herself, but having means, could invade a region such as this, and by wiles and smiles and the money she possessed, ingratiate herself into the favor of some of the more attractive of these young men here, was much commented upon. Thus a youth called Ratterer, a hall boy here, sitting beside him the very next afternoon, seeing a trim, well-formed blonde woman of about thirty enter with a small dog upon her arm, and much bedecked with furs, first nudged him, and, with a faint motion of the head indicating her vicinity, whispered, See here? There's a swift one. I'll tell you about her some time when I have more time. Gee, the things she don't do. What about her? asked Clyde, clingingly curious, for to him she seemed exceedingly beautiful, most fascinating. 
Oh, nothing, except she's been in with about eight different men around here since I've been here. She fell for Doyle, another hall boy, whom by this time Clyde had already observed as being the quintessence of Chesterfieldian grace and airs and looks, a youth to imitate, for a while, but now she's got someone else. Really? inquired Clyde, very much astonished and wondering if such luck would ever come to him. Surest thing you know, went on Ratterer. She's a bird that way, never gets enough. Her husband, they tell me, has a big lumber business somewhere over in Kansas, but they don't live together no more. She has one of the best suites on the sixth, but she ain't in it half the time, the maid told me. This same Ratterer, who was short and stocky, but good-looking and smiling, was so smooth and bland and generally agreeable that Clyde was instantly drawn to him and wished to know him better, and Ratterer reciprocated that feeling, for he had the notion that Clyde was innocent and inexperienced, and that he would like to do some little thing for him if he could. The conversation was interrupted by a service call and never resumed about this particular woman, but the effect on Clyde was sharp. The woman was pleasing to look upon and exceedingly well-groomed, her skin clear, her eyes bright. Could what Ratterer had been telling him really be true? She was so pretty. He sat and gazed, a vision of something which he did not care to acknowledge even to himself, tingling in the roots of his hair. And then the temperaments and philosophy of these boys. Kinsella, short and thick and smooth-faced and a little dull, as Clyde saw it, but good-looking and virile, and reported to be a wizard at gambling, who, throughout the first three days at such times as other matters were not taking his attention, had been good enough to continue Hegland's instructions in part. He was a more suave, better-spoken youth than Hegland, though not so attractive as Ratterer, Clyde thought, without the latter's sympathetic outlook, as Clyde saw it. And again there was Doyle, Eddie, whom Clyde found intensely interesting from the first, and of whom he was not a little jealous, because he was so very good-looking, so trim of figure, easy and graceful of gesture, and with so soft and pleasing a voice. He went about with an indescribable air, which seemed to ingratiate him instantly, with all with whom he came in contact, the clerks behind the counter, no less than the strangers who entered and asked this or that question of him. His shoes and collar were so clean and trim, and his hair cut and brushed and oiled after a fashion, which would have become a moving picture actor. From the first, Clyde was utterly fascinated by his taste in the matter of dress, the neatest of brown suits, caps, with ties and socks to match. He should wear a brown belted coat just like that. He should have a brown cap, and a suit as well cut and attractive. Similarly, a not unrelated and yet different effect was produced by that same youth who had first introduced Clyde to the work here, Hegland, who was one of the older and more experienced bellhops, and of considerable influence with the others because of his genial and devil-may-care attitude towards everything, outside the exact line of his hotel duties. Hegland was neither as schooled nor as attractive as some of the others, yet by reason of a most avid and dynamic disposition, plus a liberality where money and pleasure were concerned, and a courage, strength, and daring which neither Doyle nor Ratterer nor Kinsella could match, strength and daring almost entirely divested of reason at times, he interested and charmed Clyde immensely. As he himself related to Clyde, after a time, he was the son of a Swedish journeyman baker, who some years before in Jersey City had deserted his mother and left her to make her way as best she could. In consequence, neither Oscar nor his sister Martha had had any too much education or significant social experience of any kind. On the contrary, at the age of fourteen, he had left Jersey City in a boxcar and had begun making his way ever since as best he could. And like Clyde also, he was insanely eager for all the pleasures which he had imagined he saw swirling around him, 
and was for prosecuting adventures in every direction, lacking, however, the nervous fear of consequence which characterized Clyde. Also, he had a friend, a youth by the name of Sparser, somewhat older than himself, who was a chauffeur to a wealthy citizen of Kansas City, and who occasionally managed to purloin a car, and so accommodate Hegland in the matter of brief outings here and there, which courtesy, unconventional and dishonest though it might be, still caused Hegland to feel that he was a wonderful fellow and of much more importance than some of these others, and to lend him in their eyes a luster, which had little of the reality which it suggested to them. Not being as attractive as Doyle, it was not so easy for him to win the attention of girls, and those he did not succeed in interesting were not of the same charm or import by any means. Yet he was inordinately proud of such contacts as he could effect, and not a little given to boasting in regard to them, a thing which Clyde took with more faith than would most, being of less experience. For this reason, Hegland liked Clyde, almost from the very first, sensing in him perhaps a pleased and willing auditor. So, finding Clyde on the bench beside him from time to time, he had proceeded to continue his instructions. Kansas City was a fine place to be if you knew how to live. He had worked in other cities, Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, before he came here, but he had not liked any of them any better, principally which was a fact which he did not trouble to point out at the time, because he had not done as well in those places as he had here. He had been a dishwasher, car cleaner, plumber's helper, and several other things, before finally, in Buffalo, he had been inducted into the hotel business. And then a youth, working there, but who was now no longer here, had persuaded him to come on to Kansas City. But here, say, the tips in this hotel is as big as you'll get anywhere, I know that. And what's more, days nice people working here. You do your bit by them, they'll do right by you. I've been here over a year, and I ain't got no complaint. That guy Squires is all right if you don't cause him no trouble. He's hard, but he's got to look out for himself, too. That's natural. But he don't fire nobody unless he's got a reason. I know that, too. And as for the rest, there's no trouble. And when your work's true, your time's your own. These fellows here are good sports, all of them. They're no four-flushers and no tightwads, either. Whenever there's anything going on, a good time or something like that, they're on, nearly all of them. And they don't mooch or grouch in case things don't work out right neither. I know that, because I've been with them now, lots of times. He gave Clyde the impression that these youths were all the best of friends, close, all but Doyle, who was a little standoffish, but not coldly so. He's got too many women chasing him, that's all. Also, that they went here and there together on occasion, to a dance hall, a dinner, a certain gambling joint down near the river, a certain pleasure resort, Kate Sweeney's, where were some peaches of girls, and so on and so forth, a world of such information as had never previously been poured into Clyde's ear, and that set him meditating, dreaming, doubting, worrying, and questioning as to the wisdom, charm, delight to be found in all this, also the permissibility of it, in so far as he was concerned. For had he not been otherwise instructed in regard to all this all his life long, there was a great thrill, and yet a great question involved, in all to which he was now listening so attentively. Again there was Thomas Ratterer, who was of a type which, at first glance, one would have said, could scarcely prove either inimical or dangerous to any of the others. He was not more than five feet four, plump, with black hair and olive skin, and with an eye that was as limpid as water and as genial as could be. He, too, as Clyde learned after a time, was of a nondescript family, and so had profited by no social or financial advantages of any kind. But he had a way, and was liked by all of these youths so much so that he was consulted about nearly everything. A native of Wichita, recently moved to Kansas City, he and his sister were the principal support of a widowed mother. 
during their earlier informative years, both had seen their very good-natured and sympathetic mother, of whom they were honestly fond, spurned and abused by a faithless husband. There had been times when they were quite without food. On more than one occasion they had been ejected for non-payment of rent. None too continuously, Tommy and his sister had been maintained in various public schools. Finally, at the age of fourteen, he had decamped to Kansas City, where he had secured different odd jobs, until he succeeded in connecting himself with the Green Davidson, and was later joined by his mother and sister, who had removed from Wichita to Kansas City to be with him. But even more than by the luxury of the hotel were these youths, whom swiftly and yet surely he was beginning to decipher, Clyde was impressed by the downpour of small change that was tumbling in upon him and making a small lump in his right-hand pants pocket, dimes, nickels, quarters, and half-dollars even, which increased and increased even on the first day, until by nine o'clock he already had over four dollars in his pocket, and by twelve, at which hour he went off duty, he had over six and a half, as much as previously he had earned in a week. And of all this, as he then knew, he need only hand Mr. Squires one, no more, Hegland had said, and the rest, five dollars and a half, for one evening's interesting, yes, delightful and fascinating, work belonged to himself. He could scarcely believe it. It seemed fantastic, Aladdinish, really. Nevertheless, at twelve, exactly, of that first day, a gong sounded somewhere, a shuffle of feet had been heard and three boys had appeared, one to take Barnes's place at the desk, the other two to answer calls. And at the command of Barnes, the eight who were present were ordered to rise, write dress, and march away. And in the hall outside, and just as he was leaving, Clyde approached Mr. Squires and handed him a dollar in silver. That's right, Mr. Squires remarked. No more. Then Clyde, along with the others, descended to his locker, changed his clothes, and walked out into the darkened streets, a sense of luck and a sense of responsibility as to future luck so thrilling him as to make him rather tremulous, giddy even. To think that now, at last, he actually had such a place. To think that he could earn this much every day, maybe. He began to walk toward his home, his first thought being that he must sleep well and so be fit for his duties in the morning. But thinking that he would not need to return to the hotel before 11.30 the next day, he wandered into an all-night beanery to have a cup of coffee and some pie. And now all he was thinking was that he would only need to work from noon until six, when he should be free until the following morning at six. And then he would make more money. A lot of it to spend on himself. End of book one, chapter seven.